Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. So, David, do you think there's anything more we'll ever learn about the Roswell case? I mean, since the 60th anniversary celebration in Roswell, New Mexico, there have been new books out, new press releases. Of course, we have this book that we're going to be talking about today, The Witness to Roswell, unmasking the 60-year cover-up from Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey. So what do you think? I think it would have been great if they would have sent us the books to read before doing the show. (laughs) You know, unlike so many other radio hosts... Certainly, I could speak for myself. I read the books, you know, unlike, uh, hard, this is George, oh, forget it. Yes, yeah, we don't so, want people to think that we're here to criticize other hosts. We just tell the truth. No, yeah, no, well, we tell our truth, which, of course, is the truth, right? Right. Our <laughs> truth is the truth. There are no other truths. Just as Yoda would say, mm. I don't know what Yoda would say. Who cares? I don't Yoda know. would say, Frank Oz, get your hand out of my beep. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, Gene, this is one of those uh, things where I think might have been Paul Kimball who said on his blog that uh, Roswell has sort of now passed into the realm of mythology, where whether or not we ever get a real handle on what actually happened, there is this perception that will apparently always exist that something absolutely happened. The level of recognition from the town of Roswell, the creation of uh, what they're claiming is going to be a whole theme park based around this, which I think is somewhat unfortunate. I understand that the town is using this as an opportunity to revitalize themselves, but ultimately um, myths grow and they get a life of their own. I mean, gee, look at uh, look at the religious beliefs in the world. These are, for the most part, for my money, myths that grew into such powerhouses that you really can't get in their way anymore because they just have too much momentum and they have they have this life of their own so will we ever really find out what happened at roswell for real uh my money is on no we won't we're going to make an effort to maybe get a little more illumination if we can from the authors of witness to roswell that's donald schmidt and thomas carey coming up next on the powercast not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA. And they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, 
Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. All right, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, the book Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. What is there about Roswell that's left to know that we haven't been able to learn in those 60 years? Don, why don't you start? Well, I think uh, the the main point that is demonstrated in the book is that uh, I think for the first time we truly provide our you know growing number of witnesses their day in court. They've had to stand idly back and listen to everyone pontificate as to what they saw and what they didn't see and what they experienced and what they should have done at this point. And, you know, the typical skeptical Phil class, well, I would have done this or they should have done this, you know, at this juncture of the incident. Well, no. In this book, we let them tell it how it was and how it still remains as vivid today as it did back then. And I can tell you, after the Air Force has essentially played the old shell game now up to their fourth official explanation, unanimously, the witnesses are telling us that it was still the first one that was the correct one, that they did indeed recover a flying saucer back in July of 1947. Or you say fourth explanation. What is explanation number four? Now, we have Project Mogul Balloon. We have those Japanese balloons. I've heard about it. I forget what they're called. And Fugal balloons. Okay, the the Fugal balloons, the Mogul balloons. And what are the other two? Well, the second one would have actually been the original weather balloon explanation. Mm -hmm. That same afternoon when they had the weather balloon press conference going up the chain of command in Carswell Army Airfield in General Roger Ramey's office where they displayed the Rowland target, the radar reflector kite, as the uh, second official explanation, which would then stand for the next 40, well, actually 50 years. And then the next, the third explanation became the Project Mogul balloon, which is the same balloon. It's just that it was part of a top-secret project at that time. So in other words, same materials, same rubber, foil, wood, masking tape, bailing twine, and what uh, confused everyone, you know, what the Air Force is saying now is that it was the project itself. Well, I'm sorry, same materials, a five-year-old would have recognized it. And the fourth one coming out uh, on the brink of the 50th anniversary, which was the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummy explanation that they were testing these high-altitude oxygen, these breathing apparatus, using wooden dummies and dropping them in the central part of New Mexico. And uh, the problem there is this was five, six years removed. The project didn't even originate until the early 1950s. So there were no crash dummies in 1947? None that anyone can demonstrate and none that were ever recovered or even experimented with in that region of the state at that time. Now, just to throw this out, of course, there is another fifth explanation. Nick Redfern has written a book called Body Snatchers in the Desert. Um, Are either of you gentlemen familiar with that book? To us, it's Don and I talked about it briefly uh, when the book came out. 
and mm-hmm. we just refer to it as the latest explanation of the month. It's uh, just from my perspective, uh, using unsourced material with a, a scenario that is just. I don't know. There used to be a show called Beyond Belief, uh, something like that. It just yeah. uh, it just strains credulity to imagine the scenario that he puts forth in that book. I'd like to address the original question that you threw out: is why why our book? From my perspective, uh, the last pro Roswell book was ten years ago during the fiftieth anniversary, mm-hmm. and. It was at that time also that the Air Force put out the crash test dummy explanation, which followed on the heels of their uh, Project Mogul explanation. Since then, the only uh, Roswell book of note uh, was Carl Flock's uh, Roswell, something in the, the uh, Inconvenient Facts and the Will to Believe, an anti-Roswell book in, in 2001. And my feeling was that over the last 10 years, without further information without further supporting evidence for a UFO crash, the public would generally fall back into a malaise of, well, it must have been that weather balloon explanation. They're, they're not coming out with anything else. That must be it. End of story. Uh, uh, Roswell's over. There's nothing going on. Don and I teamed up in 1998 to continue a proactive investigation. A proactive investigation means you're out there making calls, shaking the trees, trying to find additional witnesses, uh, physical evidence if it's available. You're not sitting back on your laurels waiting for something to plop in your lap and hope that it's a a good uh, source. So uh, we've carried that on since 98 and this year we wanted to put something out because at the 60th anniversary, we felt that it would get the maximum coverage. So we put out a book with a lot of new witness testimony in it. And it's not that Don and I are giving our opinions about it. They're telling, they're telling it like it is, uh, like it was in their own words. So that's the reason we did the book. It's justified our intentions because of the feedback we've, that we've gotten. Uh, people are thanking us, A, for writing the book in the first place, and B, for uh, having so much new information in it. So uh, our, uh, our intent was uh, well-placed. So when you talk about looking for physical evidence, uh, one of the guests we've had on the show is Dr. Roger Lear, who says, claims that he has, or has come into possession of, a piece of metallic um, evidence, a piece of the metal that was supposedly retrieved from the crash field. Have you guys looked into some of these claims of people who say that they have pieces of the metal? Has there been any independent follow-up and potentially testing? When, When Dr. Lear was on the show, he claimed that There were some issues getting this tested with a reputable metallurgical lab. What have you guys done in terms of looking into these claims of physical evidence in that arena? Well, we both know, at least I know, in my case, I know Dr. Lear very well. And in fact, he was uh, directly responsible for providing us with the information as far as uh, interviewing the sons of the late black uh, Mac Magruder who's one of the principal deathbed confessions in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Dr. Lear originally presented this piece of metal, or more specifically, silicone, uh, just 10 years ago, it was its 50th anniversary. And I remember that there was some lab testing at the University of uh, California at that time, and um, it was still you know, unsubstantiated as to 
the true nature, or if it indeed was of an earthly, if it was indigenous to the earth. Right. And I would agree with, with Roger that uh, it's one of the problems that obviously we had to consider from the very beginning, that uh, all of the national laboratories are all government contracted. So we, through the decades, would hear these stories of physical evidence being turned over to Hughes Aircraft or Battelle Institute or Bureau of Standards, General Electric, you know, that type of thing, and you'd never see it again. So I know I realize the dilemma in getting a serious, impartial analysis of anything, especially uh, pertaining to UFOs. But we've had our faults along. We've had people turn over fragments, artifacts to us through the years as well. And as we've always had a contingency plan, just as in our efforts with the three archaeological digs we've had at the very debris field site starting in 1989. And we have found a few interesting, you know, pieces but uh, nothing that we'd immediately rush, you know, before the press and say that we have incontrovertible proof. And Dr. Lear has had this piece now for 10 years, so um, I would just think that if anybody was truly interested in such physical evidence, that we'd have some answers by now. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me just tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to the authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, Donald Schmidt, Thomas Carey. And we're going to continue with our discussion here. I want to ask you guys something here, and that is that as people get older, we're talking about the people who were originally witness to Roswell are really up there in years. And can we rely on their memories now? any more than we could during the 50th anniversary of Roswell and earlier? Doesn't that create even more complications in getting accurate information? Well, the uh, witnesses that we have interviewed, and there have been hundreds, you, you develop a technique of interviewing people who are in their late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, late 80s, sometimes, some of them in their 90s. So you take each witness as they come. And uh, certainly we are very sensitive to the ravages of old age. But I can tell you that the, the spectrum of what we have uh, seen runs the gamut from very alert, uh, still playing tennis on a daily basis, 
to uh, people with Parkinson's. We, we've interviewed everything from one end to the other and everything in between. So uh, I would contest the uh, notion that this, uh, especially as it was applied to the crash test dummy uh, explanation for people who claim to have seen uh, bodies, that they were mixing up uh, one decade with another. This is not one year or month uh, with another, but uh, you're off by a decade. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I can remember uh, pretty much uh, the year that something happened in my life uh, way back by what grade in school I was, uh, what songs were popular, what movies were out, uh, what I was doing, things like that. And uh, the witnesses are no different. And uh, something as dramatic uh, as this, they should have no trouble, and, and they don't, uh, uh, remembering something like that. And, and as you age, your long-term memory uh, stays pretty good. It's the short-term memory as you age that uh, becomes impaired. So, so you um, basically will remember things that happened years ago, but not so much now. Of course, I remember the day that Kennedy was killed. I remember I that just, very distinctly. Which I was just going to interject. In fact, that is the very example we always cite. For those of us who were all alive at that time, we all remember precisely where we were and what we were doing when it first hit the news. And I remember and what we, my father said to this day. He comes exactly. home from work and he says, you know, the president was shot. And, of course, I was already watching the event on television. But that's the first thing that came out of his mouth when he came home. And we were not there. We were not directly involved to suggest that the people at Roswell who were actually participants would have any less memory. And in most of their cases, their memory is even sharper. It is as though it happened just yesterday because it had such a dramatic effect. And after all these years, I would defy anyone to demonstrate how a weather balloon or something else just as mundane would have such a lasting memory after all this time. And uh, what a lot of them are saying is that they, they remember the headlines. You know, it happened right before or right after the headlines that announced that the Air Force had captured a flying saucer. So that, that uh, July 8, 1947 headline acts as a fulcrum to, to many of the uh, testimonies that we get. They, they remember that headline, and uh, they say, well, it happened right around then. I'm, I'm not sure whether it was before or after, or they are sure. So for that reason, we, 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 you know, we're talking about uh, a period of time that uh, people can remember pretty well, maybe with not exact specificity, but the, uh, certainly uh, to a period of early July 1947. And this uh, uh, time compression hocus-pocus that the air forces uh, uh, relied upon just it just does not apply now let me ask you i guess about the most interesting piece of evidence that apparently has come forth which is this affidavit from walter hout reportedly written before he died that's correct can you tell people about this in fact walter hout was the uh, first lieutenant he was a public information officer at Roswell 1947 and uh, the base commander Colonel William Blanchard had uh, dictated to him that very press release which he then typed up and then distributed through town to the local media actually announcing that recovery that capture of the flying saucer and that in essence was all that Walter you know said to us for all the years we knew him we had uh, actually met Walter back in 1989 and he was a regular he was somebody who we went back to each and every trip, not only for his friendship and his camaraderie, but also for the fact that because he was so close to Colonel Blanchard, and when I say close, I'm talking about someone 
who that when Blanchard died of a heart attack at the Pentagon as a four-star general, a special courier from Washington was sent to Roswell to re go directly to Walter's home and inform him personally. Now, that sets about mm. his closest family. And so it always, you know, caused us to ponder as to if someone that close to the base commander would have been completely left out in the cold. If there were certain things that either he would have, uh, you know, you know, actually specified specific information to Walter about the incident, or if he even allowed him to see certain things. So it was three years before Walter died, and he had actually trickled information to us on and off through the years. But it was quite clear that he was very sensitive to not only his security oath, but as though he was honoring someone else's request to him. And it was quite clear as we demonstrate in the book, that he was honoring the old man, as he called him, Colonel Blanchard. That Blanchard had asked him not to say another word about this, and he was doing just that. So we had to come up with a, a venue, a manner by which he could present the information, tell us what had happened to the best of his ability, without betraying, you know, that trust, that bond that he had with Blanchard. And... It was suggested to us by an attorney that a sealed statement might provide that opportunity. And that's what was done. And it was prepared. It was based on things that Walter had told us in confidence for a, a number of years leading up to that time. He was ready to do it. His doctor had given us a clear uh, go-ahead that he mentally was totally competent, very stable, very alert, very sharp at the time. And he sat down, and he read through it, uh, not only not just once, but numerous times, in the presence of his daughter, and a notary, and another witness. And when he was ready to sign, and he agreed to its content, that's precisely what he did. It was then sealed and put away for posthumous release, as then decided by his family as to its disposition. I'm going to ask and you another question about that in a moment. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Piani. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. We are talking to Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. Okay, before we go into detail on this document, was it notarized? Was the signature witnessed by some third party? Yes. Okay. As well as another witness, as well as his daughter, Julie. So there were three other people in the room. 
Okay, so tell us, what does it say? What does it reveal? Well, be- before we do that, though, you guys have a copy of this document in the book? Yes. The copy that you have is the notarized copy. We see the notary public stamp and the signatures of the witnesses? Yes, except uh, the last name of the one witness. All right, so what the document in your book is the one that is the notarized version. It's not basically just an extrapolation from that. You're saying that you have in the book the actual, or at least a copy of, the actual notarized document where we see clearly it is a real notarized document. Exactly, and as okay. given permission to us by the family when we were approached last fall as we were actually writing the book. And the family asked us personally if we would include it in the new book. Okay. So the family still retains the original copy, the original signed copy, but we had full access to uh, the uh, verbiage, the actual sworn affidavit for the purpose of the book. All right. I think there are people out there that are wondering about the timeline of this, guys. It's my understanding that the affidavit was actually given in 2002. Is that correct? November, uh, December. 26 of 2002. Okay. Hot died in 2005. November, uh, actually uh, December of 2005. So okay. three years so later. Th- three years later. Was there a reason that the affidavit was not made known in public circles until now? I mean, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to sort of piece the timeline together here. It seems like after Hot died, you would think that the affidavit would have made the front page news shortly thereafter. So what happened? It was, again, based on the decision of the family, the manner by which it was to be disclosed. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was strictly their decision. It was a case of whether they would have a press conference, whether they would even use the museum in Roswell as a forum for such a disclosure. And uh, quite frankly, Tom and I were very honored that we were asked to include it in the book. They felt that in conjunction with the other witnesses in the book and the chapter even leading up to the sealed statement which is an entire chapter on deathbed confessions that it demonstrates collectively that these people are all talking about the same event that even up to their deaths that they are still reluctant that they are still in complete you know patronage as far as honoring their security oaths protecting their families, concern for their pensions, as some of the witnesses still, still still say to us. So I think it was, again, a collective decision based on the impact that all of these people demonstrating that, and as even our judicial courts accept, that deathbed confessions are admissible in a court of law. They are accepted as physical evidence. Hmm. We even thought of, and Don remembers this, uh, last year we did a show for the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, Sci-Fi Investigates. They had a series. Yeah, good point, Tom. Oh, yeah, yeah. with Richard Dolan. And, and yeah, yes. yeah, we, yeah, sure, sure. And uh, the uh, first show that they actually cut, I mean, I don't mean eliminated, but the did, Edited, was the yeah. show on Roswell. Mm-hmm. And there was a thought at that time of releasing the sealed statement in that show. But what happened was that there was a uh, production problem uh, after the shooting with the show. So they, they, they went and shot the rest of the shows in the series, and the Roswell show became the last show. Right. 
And at that time, we felt that uh, that show was not the vehicle to release the sealed statement. And the so, how right we were. Yes. We, as Don said, we felt honored that uh, the family uh, chose us to uh, release the sealed statement in our book. There's something, as you guys are talking about, Haught, um revealing bits of this to you guys over years, at the same time that he had this very high level of loyalty to Blanchard. One of the things that occurs to me is it would then be odd that Haught would speak to you guys relatively openly, and I'm kind of wondering about how much stuff he revealed to you and when, in that if he has this tremendous loyalty to Blanchard and is keeping this stuff you know, under wraps for so long, he knows you guys are two investigators looking into this stuff. Wouldn't he hesitate to reveal information to you? Well, it's a matter of trust. We were not investigators. Uh, you know, Roswell's a case where somebody will say, oh, I want to investigate Roswell ca- uh, the Roswell case. They breeze into Roswell on a Friday and leave on a Monday, and they think they've got the, uh, the case, and the uh, uh, witnesses who live in Roswell never see them again. Well, in the case of Don and myself, we've been to Roswell. How many times would you say, Don? Uh, I've been there about 50 and I've uh, I've just exceeded a hundred. And of those hundred trips, the almost always included visits with Walter. I defy anyone to suggest that of any of the researchers, any investigators, that he was closer to any one of them. I was an honorary pallbearer at his funeral, so he was like an uncle to me in, in the regard that I even flew down special just before he died just to see him one last time. Hmm. So I guess we both would take umbrage at even the question that why would he confide to us? Because it was like a nephew constantly badgering, constantly, come on, uncle, you know, what about this? What about that? Because we were relentless. We just kept coming back to it. And he would just, you know, a little tidbit, a little piece here and there. He knew that we wouldn't, uh, you know, betray trust. Betray a trust to break uh, his request that we wouldn't say anything as well. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Before we continue, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking with Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. So what new are we learning from this deathbed document that we didn't know before? Well, the, there are some salient points that are new. Number one, we now know that the famous press release that the Air Force uh, first put out, that uh, they had captured a flying saucer, was engineered from Washington. We also know that Ramey and uh, General Ramey and his adjutant, Colonel Thomas DuBose, attended a, the Tuesday morning, July 8th, weekly um, meeting half, that the Blanchard had to, to get a hold of this story. We also know that uh, Walter Hout went out to one of the crash sites. We were told this, uh, unknown unknown to Walter, I had interviewed someone who worked for Walter named Lloyd uh, Nelson. 
in the P, in the public information office. I interviewed him about the same time that uh, Walter was writing the uh, sealed statement, and uh, neither knew about the other. And uh, Lloyd Nelson uh, told me that uh, Walter had come into the uh, public information officer with Jesse Marcel. Each had some wreckage in their hands, which they showed around. And uh, Walter, in a sealed statement, says the same thing. So uh, we know several new things about Walter. Uh, what did I leave out, Don? Well, I mean, certainly that he talks about bringing material into his office, as you just mentioned. But then beyond that, that uh, he was allowed by Colonel Blanchard to actually go to P3, Hangar 84, and see the remains of the egg-shaped object that was just retrieved from north of town, and then what appeared to be the size of small children under a canvas tarpaulin, a number of bodies with the heads exposed, not able to make out any features, but that the heads were disproportionately larger from the rest of the bodies. So for the first time, he acknowledged that he had indeed seen a number of the crewmen from that ship. One of the things that... Um always struck me as odd. I had read the UFO magazine feature article about um, Mac Magruder, and something that really struck me as odd is in that article there is this description where uh, Magruder and a number of his uh, peers were taken to see what I presume would have been the remaining being that was alive, and he said that squiggly, yeah, I mean, he basically described this thing in a way that doesn't really match any other description that we've ever read. Oh, sure it does. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. How how so? The general physical description of these, uh, they they called them back then little people. They didn't refer to them aliens. The the civilians just referred to them as little people. But uh, with a uh, height of about three and a half to four feet tall and the classic description of a frail body, about 40 pounds was described. But the, the salient feature was an oversized head with slightly slanted eyes, no nose, just two little orifices where the nose would be, and no ears, again, two orifices where the ears would be. Color anywhere from uh, gray-green to gray-blue to gray-pinkish. Uh, we think that's because of either, either due to either the lighting or the state of the uh, decay. Hmm. Now, beyond that, we have several descriptions by various military people who saw the, the bodies. Uh, Pappy Henderson, who flew the uh, the uh, first flight out of a uh, one batch of bodies uh, straight to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, said that they reminded him of Casper the Ghost. Another fellow who worked for Jesse Marcel by the name of uh, Herschel Grice said that Marcel referred to them as uh, white rubbery figures. Another Another witness des- described them as uh, had the color of a white powdery substance. So there's some sort of, uh, and there was one other one that reminded them of uh, something like a rubbery type uh, entity. You know, remember the uh, Al Cap uh, cartoon character, character the Shmoo? Oh, yeah. Remember sure. that? Oh, yeah. yeah, something like that. So there is this uh, beyond the the physical morphological features, which I just described. There is this description of this rubbery type entity. Whether they're talking about the skin, how it felt, uh, uh, we don't know. But but the, uh, and then Magruder himself, when his 
Air War College class of 1947-48 in late July. This is like two weeks after the event. Uh, they were flown up to Wright Field. We think that they were shown the bodies because at that point they they probably were wondering what should we do with this? Should, should we release information? Should we keep it under wraps? What should we do? So they take, took this Air War College class of the which was going to be the future of our Air Force. These were the best and the brightest going forward into the uh, what was soon to become the United States Air Force as a separate branch. And they wanted them to see this one that was still alive. And Magruder's description, which to me and Don resembles the same same thing that Pappy Henderson and uh, Marcel and the uh, uh, saw, he described it as squiggly, which to me means some sort of rubbery type of entity. Right. The, the detail that I'm remembering, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was a while ago that I read this article, but I seem to remember, and I remember reading it, and it struck me odd, that the face of this thing, if I'm, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said something about that it changed, almost that it morphed. While they were looking at it, that it, I, it took. Do you remember that? I don't or? recall that. No, I, I don't all recall right. that. And that's all right. having talked to all of the sons, and um, none of them mentioned that that feature. No. All right, all right. I could, I could, I reserve the right to be wrong at all times. <laughs> <laughs> we interviewed all of the. Uh, well, he, uh, Magruder had five sons. We interviewed four of them. So, all right. we covered so the waterfront. And they backed up their father's story. I take it. Absolutely. I mean, oh, yeah. here's a fellow who was a World War II hero. He was a uh, he had a pres his unit had a presidential citation. Uh, they were a night fighter uh, squadron uh, in the Pacific. And uh, Magruder himself uh, looked like uh, uh, Tyrone Power. I mean, he could have been a movie star. Mm. And they uh, after the war, he opened up a number of. Uh, McDonald's franchises. So he he has umpteen McDonald franchises, and I hmm. believe the son said uh, the first one was in Oklahoma, but they have them in California, California. Arizona, Colorado. So, so if I eat at McDonald's here in Arizona, I might be going to a McDonald's that they own. You got it, Ruder McDonald's. <laughs> All right. All right. So he, yeah, he had a full life. They didn't need the money, and so that uh, that argument didn't seek the attention and notoriety and even just getting back to Walter Hott. Um, he could have, you know, profited with his information for all it was worth. He could have certainly had he written a book. He could have, you know, just as Magruder, you know, to basically taken the money and run. But uh, they rather decided to take it, most of it with them, but still at least give us a taste of the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely what Magruder did with his own sons. Each individually, he would tell them what he had seen back in 47 at right field. Right. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. 
My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, co-authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. There's an important question, I think, that needs to be asked. It's true, though, that Hawt's daughter and Hawt were involved in creating the museum, the UFO museum at Roswell, right? His daughter was not Walter, certainly, as one of the founders, yes. Okay. So... It, again, just playing devil's advocate here, uh, because we have a pretty wide listener base, and uh, you know, we, we, we ask what some people consider tough questions, but I think this is a reasonable question, in that it seems like there is some financial incentive for um, the story to be perpetuated of an actual alien event, an alien crash event in Roswell. And, and I haven't yet asked about the whole corona connection because there there's a belief that we actually are talking about two crashes and not one and i'm going to hope you guys are going to um, talk about that a little bit into the interview but what about people that would say well paul did have some financial consideration here and that it behooved him to create the idea that there was an, an alien event because that would drum up interest and attendance for the museum i mean what would you guys say to that well that smacks of uh the time when we were doing the interview with Phil Jones from CBS News for a segment on 48 Hours. Mm-hmm. And we were walking right outside the very hangar where much of this took place. And he just, you know, thinking out loud, just raised the point, raised the issue. Was it possible that a lot of these guys just sitting around a few drinks back in 1947 just concocted the whole thing? And create a museum and make this into a big tourist trap. You know, just uh, generate a lot of notoriety, a lot of attention, and there'd be no truth to it whatsoever. And I responded by suggesting, yeah, and they all waited until they were either all dead or in their 80s before, well, maybe we should now start to capitalize on it before it's too late. The point is, Walter didn't capitalize on it at all. To suggest that, well, he was just looking out for his museum or his two dollars, Again, one never knows what's truly in someone's heart. But I guess the same could be said about anyone who donates to a charity or leaves anything to a foundation or their, you know, alumni, you know, association, that type of thing. There's always the second guessing. What is the true motive at hand here? But the difference, and I think that's why it comes back to the book and the decision to allow us to put it in the book because it gels with all the other testimony. All the other people that didn't profit or write books about this, all the other people that waited to the very deathbeds before they finally told the truth about this. And Walter's story, you know, just corroborates all the others. And it's it's not that the uh, the others in their later years are coming forward and waving their hands, uh, interview me, please interview me. That's not the case. We are finding them on our own, and the the question that we get is, how did you find me? And uh, it's it's like uh, we're prying them loose. 
and they're not seeking attention. No, they correct. basically know these things, and they just hang out and keep it to themselves to their families. Uh, Tom and I should both emphasize, put on the record that just as you had asked earlier. Why did Walter confide to us? Why did it take so long? Mm-hmm. Because we did have to pry the information out of Walter. He never volunteered any of this. He never asked to do this. He never asked to prepare any type of affidavit or sealed statement containing all the final information he did. In and- fact, previous to this, he did two other affidavits in 91 and 93, where he basically just said, I just put out the press release. I heard about the uh, the recovery of the flying saucer, and I heard that it was explained away as a weather balloon. End of story. This was his final addendum. This was his attachment to those two previous affidavits. But we had to, you know, get him to do it. He never volunteered doing this. And it took years. It took years. It's not something you breeze in on a Friday night and uh, leave Sunday morning with it. It, uh, it, yeah. it took years and years. And uh, he, uh, I'd like to think he uh, felt that he could trust us, and, and, we, and he certainly could. Right. The thing about this is that as someone who is an experiencer of these things, one of the main reasons that we're talking to you guys on the Paracast to begin with is that most of my life, I sat on my experiences, never talked about them with anybody, period. Um, And these things festered inside of me. And it reached a critical point for me where I felt almost as a form of therapy, and I've said this on the show before, I feel it's really useful for me, healthy for me, to talk about these things that, that I've seen and I've witnessed in multiple realms of the paranormal world. When I think about someone like Walter Hopp, who potentially, if... If we're to go on this stuff and assume it's real, that we have a guy who potentially saw beings who knew that this incredibly important, possibly the most important event in human history had happened, for him to sit on this a majority of his life, whether or not he was military, because he ended up leaving the military and going into civilian life, and he sat on this for years you're saying now that there had been a couple of affidavits where he essentially took a position of neutrality. Yeah. But then you say, okay, and we're clear on that, but then you say that you had to get it out of him. You had to drag it out of him over years. There are two ways of seeing this, guys. And again, I think it's important to just have an open discussion about this and to just, you know, just be honest here in, in what I'm telling you. In that if I'm looking at this from a critical point of view, I could say, okay... You helped him get over this hump that he had, this emotional hump that he had inside where he couldn't talk about it or wouldn't talk about it, and you facilitated this um, admission of his, or you gave him a platform in which to release this information after his death. That'd be one way to parse this. The other way to parse this would be that potentially you coerced him and he acquiesced i mean and i'm not saying that's the case but i'm saying that somebody who was looking at this and trying to understand it from a logical point of view based on what you're saying and based on what we know it could go either way and i'm not trying to say well you know we have to second guess everything but when it comes to this information and the nature of this and the nature of the secrecy around this certainly i think it probably behooves us to approach it from multiple angles Regarding the, uh, the, uh, the, the second uh, theory, neither one of us were in the room, we were not even in Roswell, when he was able to sit down, read through the statement, 
as to its content, accept it or not, as even his daughter Julie states today, if there was a single word in the statement that he would have disagreed with, he mm -hmm. would never have signed it. So to suggest that there was any pressure or any coercion on our part, that's what a reporter with a camera and a microphone in your face is more guilty of. That cannot be said of us. It was done freely. It was done at his final decision when he finally accepted that this was the manner by which he wanted to preserve some of the information. And I say some because Tom and I truly believe that Walter took most of it with him. For being, you know, as close as he was to the base commander, he had to be privy to a lot more that he never divulged. But to suggest that Walter was under any pressure by anyone, including us or his family, again, isn't just dealing in reality. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have one more section to go this hour, but they'll be joining us for the second hour. Donald Schmidt, Thomas Carey, author is a witness to Roswell unmasking the 60-year cover-up. And you can buy that book, I gather, at Amazon.com and all the usual offenders, right? Barnes & Noble, yes. Sure. Okay. All right. So this obviously was one of the considerations and that David asked because we wanted to understand about this particular document and obviously questions are raised about it. Now, there's a story on that I read from the PR Newswire, and I'm going to read it to you and you tell me if you're aware of who this person might be. Stephen Greer, M.D., Director of Disclosure Project, reports that a new Army intelligence witness has come forward with knowledge of an extraterrestrial biological life form who survived the UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. So we're talking about another person here who is coming forth. Do you know who that person might be? I certainly don't. Uh, no, and I, and I don't either. And it's supposedly someone who saw a living entity a number of years after Roswell, correct? I am looking at this, and yes, that's correct. Apparently, the E.T. was being transported to a facility for study. This witness, who was highly credible, at least what the release says, states that he learned that this E.T. was the sole remaining living being from the Roswell crash in July of 1947. So, yes, this happened in 1950, apparently. So they're indirectly involved with Roswell, whereas our focus has been primarily the personnel who were actually there in 47. So we've often had people after the fact claim that they saw 
wreckage, saw the ship, even bodies in, in different locations years thereafter. So, but that has not been our focus. So that's why these people tend to come out at uh, different times, and typically by other researchers for that reason. Okay, in the way you're saying it, are you suggesting that these supposed witnesses are not real, not authentic, or that they just came forth for whatever reason? Well, we'd, we'd have to wait and see, but uh, Don will back me up on this. Our, our uh, experience has been that the, and I don't know how Stephen Greer ob- obtained the witness, if he went after him and found him or if, if this witness just came forward, but our experience is that most of the witnesses that we have had come forward to us have not panned out. The ones that are the real deal are the ones that we went after just on cold calls and that they tell us just a little snippet of what went on. It's all that they know but they've—it's just a little piece of what uh, what went on, and it was our job. It is our job to piece it all together. And we had—we usually had to find those people. When we called them, we had no idea whether they uh, were involved or not. It was just a, a uh, systematic search that uh, we uh, are still conducting, and that's how we find uh, the witnesses that have given us information. Now, I, I'm I'm interested now that you mentioned it to, to see who this person is and. Uh, where they fit into the uh, Roswell picture. One of the telling things, and, and Tom, somebody just touched on it, is anyone with any awareness, any knowledge of the compartmentalization of the military. And any time a witness tells us too much, seems to be privy or involved with too much, that's inconsistent with just uh, you know the, the military in itself. So that's why Tom just mentioned we get little tidbits, we get little pieces of the puzzle from each individual because that's exactly what we expect from legitimate people involved. Supposedly, from what I'm reading in this release, the, the, it was also a deathbed confession. The person um, who supposedly came forward with this was a... Uh, oh, actually, no, I'm, I'm ta- let me correct myself. I'm reading the press release. This was a separate military witness. Apparently, in Greer's dis- uh, press release, he claims there were two witnesses that had come forth. One was um, someone who had a father who was a senior official in the government and that his father had made a deathbed confession confession of seeing some being at a facility. And that's separate from supposedly the person who saw a being in 1950. And it's Um, kind of confusing the way it's phrased. They also mention in paragraph four your particular experience where you had the deathbed confession from Lieutenant Hawk. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that is, has always been advantageous on our part is whether it be any of the previous books, the Unsolved Mysteries uh, programs on Roswell, and certainly, as we would expect with the, the release of the new book, that some of the family will come forward. Uh, the, just the power and the protection of almost like a mutual support group on Roswell, so to speak, that they realize that uh, there should be nothing to, to fear, to be afraid of, as far as any government reprisal, any retaliation. If they join the ranks of all the others who have already gone on the record. So I'm not surprised that uh, even the news coverage over the 60th anniversary, that uh, such potential witnesses may indeed come forward. Are there any names given, or is he going to release no. a name? Or 
No, there's no names given in this press release. None. Is he? Is he? Does it say if he's going to to present any further information on this, or are we just supposed to wonder? I mean, what's he well, going to do? With, it's more of well, a tease, right? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, you know, Greer's probably too busy vectoring an aircraft with flashlights and shooting video <laughs> of bugs and calling it uh, aliens. And this, of course, is the problem, guys, with. This discussion, you've got a guy like Greer who, on one hand, has done a bunch of useful research with the Disclosure Project, but on the other hand, has C-SETI. So it's almost like one cancels out the other. And it seems like, you know, when we talk about this topic and we talk about Roswell, we have on one hand what could be the most important event in human history, and on the other hand, we have a town creating an amusement park themed on this information. So... I think in the in the the eyes of the public, they look at this, and essentially what happens is that the column A of information is canceled out by the column B. And so the question is, how do we get some kind of a rational discussion going on around this? And you know that might be a discussion we should take to hour number two of our presentation. And um, we have some answers to that. We're going to be talking for a full second hour with our special guests Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. You can get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all the usual offenders. More with our guests in part two on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Back was the second hour of our session with Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt, co-authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, and certainly looking over the episode of the last few weeks. We had the 60th anniversary celebration. It was very much like a circus, especially when you saw all these stories about building amusement parks and all this stuff, that the town of Roswell, all they wanted to do was cash in. It was our concern back uh, around 1991 and 92 that the outside opportunists, the commercial venturers, would come into Roswell and attempt to, attempt to exploit the event, you know, having no concern whatsoever for the actual incident. So we had approached city fathers at that time with the idea of a museum, a repository for the actual creation, for the historic commemoration of the event itself. And Walter Hott had spearheaded that idea. It was something that then took another year, year and a half to even, you know, get off the ground. But the museum has become what it is because we remain a separate entity from the outside capitalization on the incident, where Roswell has become this tourist attraction, this cash cow for the city itself and certainly all the new businesses who have come into town. But this is capitalism. This is human nature. It's, it's no different, no less than Graceland or a lot of our other historic landmarks where you're going to have the vendors, you're going to have the restaurants and hotels that always pop up in the immediate area. Can't prevent it, can't stop it. But we remain an oasis in the middle of all this really nonsense. And I think the best example, the best illustration that we could provide is that we had mentioned in, earlier in the program that we've conducted three archaeological digs at the debris field site. There are no tours to this site. There's nothing out there that would suggest that anything happened at the actual location. We kept our word to the ranch owner, the Bureau of Land Conservation people, so we demonstrate by our own actions 
that we are not attempting to commercialize or exploit this in any way. Now, that raises a big issue here, because in previous discussions we had about the Roswell Festival, it was mentioned that the museum on one hand and the city fathers on the other hand would not work together on this festival. And there was a claim, and maybe you could respond to it, that the people who ran the museum, if someone spoke at the museum, they shouldn't or couldn't speak at the other festival, as it were, and if they did, they couldn't go and speak at the museum. So what's going on here? Inside politics, I'm like, I really can't comment on that because I don't really have any personal information about that. All I can speak for is our position, and as even an advisor to the museum, that we are not into the commercialization. That's why the museum remains a non-for-profit entity. So as, the, as far as the city putting on their own separate festival, again, that's by their choice. They have no connection to the event, no connection to the museum. And as far as speakers being obligated to one or the other, again, can't speak for that personally. It's almost like the days of The Tonight Show, where supposedly there were rival shows over the years, and if you appeared on one, you couldn't appear on the other, and that has got to be absurd. You'd sign a statement of exclusivity for a year, yes. And uh, no, I, I can't see that happening here. Now, the other issue, of course, is the various researchers who do work in this arena. And it seems that there are separate camps with those people, too, that not all of you people are working together to try to find out the real answers. What's going on there? The question that we get a lot is, uh, why don't the researchers pool their information into a for the common good. It sounds good on the surface as to, boy, that'd be great, all the researchers work together. But the, the, the problem is that the researchers have an uneven, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, level uh, of involvement, level of participation. Yes. From the, uh, share investigators to those like us who are actually pro-investigators, proactive. Right. Our investigation is proactive, and I think we're the only proactive investigators on the Roswell case and for the last, well, since the 50th anniversary. So we have a, a, a different commitment uh, involving allocation of resources for such an investigation uh, compared to, uh, say, an armchair type. Why would we want to share our information with an armchair type uh, when down the road uh, we're talking about uh, certainly books, things like that, to release the information? So uh, it's just uh, unrealistic to, to think that uh, we can work together when uh, not everybody's on the same page. We're yeah. planning on the next archaeological dig, which will be our fourth. I mean, uh, you guys, or one of you is in Arizona, and we're in the Midwest and the East Coast, so we have to plan these things from 1,000, 1,500 miles away. And as we've done it in the past, we've had so-called colleagues, associates, right in Roswell, who we tried to rely on, who we would love to change places with, for just a good month for what we could potentially accomplish. And I think we just continue to demonstrate that even from long distance, that we're good at what we do, and that we're able to even from vast you know, miles away put together archeological projects, bring the right person now in, get the job done. And that's why 
uh, I think we've demonstrated the level of accomplishment that we have. We, we've tried to bring others into our investigation. We've had people come forward and say, oh, please, I want to help you. I just want to help you guys. So uh, what we do is we give them assignments to interview this person because they, they live close to that person or that person, and what happens, we never hear from them again. So uh, expanding the scope uh, of the people involved just doesn't work because it takes a special talent. You have to uh, deal with rejection a lot, and uh, it just uh, it just hasn't worked. Now, uh, regarding other investigators, well, suppose suppose we're doing 90% of the work and someone else is doing 10%. Do we pool our work and get equal credit? I, I just don't think that's uh, realistic. Like all human endeavors, it comes down to egos and money. And so what we're saying here basically is that the entire realm of paranormal research is a wash. It's completely useless. We're all wasting our time because... You guys are saying, well, we're the only researchers uh, dealing with Roswell in a serious way. Now, in the back of my mind, I'm hearing Dennis Balthaser screaming in one ear, and Don, all apologies, I'm hearing Kevin Randall screaming in my other ear. Not to mention, of course, Stan Friedman. Yeah, Stan Friedman, who apparently now, because he's sensing too much competition and too many other big egos, he's now off to the Betty Hill stuff being Mr. Leo Performer. I'm Leo. I'm a performer. Ha, ha, ha. Laugh at me. I'm laughing at myself. Hey, before we laugh any further. No, no, we're not stopping for a break now. We're going to make this point, all right? Go ahead. Well, yeah, I'd love to hear what you've got to say about that. Okay. I think as we already pointed out, I think both of us would defy anyone to suggest that they have conducted any proactive investigation of Roswell in the last 10 years. It's one thing to just regurgitate the same old information over and over again and claim one is actively involved. I think the new book certainly demonstrates that we have taken it much beyond the next level. No different than whenever, for example, when Sci-Fi Channel contacted us back in May of 2002, asking us that very question. How could we take this to the next level? And we immediately suggested we'd like to do another archaeological dig at the site. No one else is proposing this. No one else, uh, it would appear, has the wherewithal to do this. Or, more simply, if we want to get back again to greed and ego, no one else is willing to invest the time and effort. And again, I'm talking about people even in New Mexico who are right there. So this isn't greed and ego on our part. We see this as a mission, as a devotion, and a commitment to the witnesses who not only have gone on the record for us, but who we have also befriended. And if it takes, I mean, the approach and the techniques that we are utilizing to get the job done, then so be it. And if it steps on others' toes, or they see it as competition, or territorial that we are encroaching on their you know case at any one time again so be it (laughs) 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Okay, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. And I think it's a corollary to the question and our concerns about the fact that we don't have all the researchers working together. And that is, doesn't that also help the government? If they want to keep this story, and it's exactly as you say it is, that craft were recovered, that beings from another planet or whatever were recovered. If this is all true, wouldn't this serve the government's interests to have the backbiting and the egos and everything? Because that way it helps prevent people from working together to get to the bottom of this mystery. We don't see it as backbiting. Don and I are going ahead irregardless of what, what, what else takes place. We know what our mission is. If you want to get on board, you're on board. We're not worrying about what the government is thinking, what other investigators are thinking. We're going in a certain direction irregardless. So uh, it really is no no issue with us. Uh, the backbiting, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, not to interrupt you, Tom, but we've had these discussions many times. We find ourselves working outside the UFO community certainly more than within. We're dealing with witnesses for, for, to begin with who have absolutely no involvement with the UFO field. So we have the best of both worlds. We don't feel that we have to appease or even present the information to the UFO community. The information, as far as we're concerned, is for the mass public. Well, sure, because the mass public ultimately are the ones that buy the books, not the UFO community, or is that true? Well, we we wrote the book for the mass public. Uh, we we did not write the book for other investigators. I don't know. It, it almost sounds you're, you're like you're knocking us for our investigation. I, I'm not following this. 
if, we, if we're not doing it, who's the, who, who's going to do it? We felt it was oh, no, a worthwhile I, endeavor, and sure, uh, we're I, we're you know we're going straight ahead with this. If you know if we get help along the way, that's great. If uh, others want to uh, contribute, great. Uh, I, I I don't know. Uh, we don't have this co- this conversation with uh, with others very often uh, because we're so busy working the case. I think it's important to have the conversation though, because in the year and a half that we've been doing the Paracast, it seems like for the most part what we're discovering is that no one seems to agree with anyone. And and I, I agree with what Gene says in that if anything, it's almost as if this serves the purpose of making any kind of level discussion in this field even tougher. You know, I, it, it's frustrating when one realizes that in order to get to any actual concrete truth here, one has to cut through the human element in trying to figure out the extraterrestrial reality. The human reality really does seem to get in the way. And um, sorry if you guys are taking it as a personal attack. It's not meant to be that at all. No, no, no. I, I, I don't. And I, I see certainly that it could be government's, you know, manipulation of just stroking certain egos and the distribution of disinformation to one camp and withholding it from another. Uh, I hearken back to the contact, the element of the mid-50s and the George Adamskis and the Howard Mengers and the, the Dan Fries, and they would have their big conventions. And who would typically be sitting in the front rows at all of these affairs but military brass applauding, you know, their stories. You know, the perpetuating the, the, the myth, the mythology of you the subject. You know, about Menger, you know, I remember, this is back in the 1960s, sitting in a small diner in New York City with Jim Mosley mm-hmm. and Howard yeah. Menger. And Menger said, he thought at that time, I don't know what his game was, if there was a game. He seemed very sincere about it because Jim Mosley had poked fun at him. You know, mm-hmm. the Jersey Adamski, ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. Mm-hmm. So Menger comes to us and says, you know, I think that I was brought into this by government agents and that what I thought happened didn't really happen. Now, I don't know what that was all about, whether it was a game, whether it was trying to get publicity, or maybe he was speaking the truth. I don't know. But that's just one of the points and the tidbits that come out of it. Now, I haven't heard anything about Menger in years. Is he still even alive? He is still alive down in Florida. In fact, I just heard that within the last couple of weeks when I even brought his name up from someone who seemed to know firsthand. And Menger, I guess to his credit, was one of the more believable people as far as involved in that whole you know, charlatan affair, so to speak. Well, his but, particular UFO photos to me look like they were copied from the special effects in the movie Day the Earth Stood Still. Day the Earth Stood Still, correct. Absolutely, 100%. But I, again, get, getting back to your concern, uh, it's, it's no different than as an investigation remains fluid, and especially if one can envision the exposition of any type of government cover-up, the obstacles, the, the, the hoops that one has to jump through just to make that next, uh, ed, uh, you know, that next advance, that reach that next uh, witness, that next level of information, mm-hmm. the constant disinformation, the, the different crash sites, the different witnesses that had happened here, it happened there. I mean, we've had to go through all that. But as even the late Dr. Jalen Hynek would say, that it's also... The nature of the phenomenon is having to sift, you know, through all the chaff, 
to separate the wheat from that shaft. And for those who, again, can say they believe 100%, they accept this 100%, our investigation continues after this recent book. It remains fluid. We still feel that we have to bring this to a conclusion. And whether there's another book at stake or not, it's beyond that. It's, again, the case, the nature of at least our investigation. You know, it's the same in academics. Uh, you have a subject under, you know, a focus of a particular academic. Uh, they do their own research. They publish in Nature, the, the, the British journal Nature, and others comment on it. It's the same thing. They don't all work together. They're all doing their own individual research. They have symposia, which, which we just uh, attended uh, in Roswell. It's very similar to academics, and everything there is not, uh, you know, everybody's not in agreement, and they don't work together. They just, they have their own research, and they publish the results, which is what, what we're doing. I just don't think we're so different from uh, them. So what's it's the like equivalent the, then of peer review then? What's where's the peer review? Peer review was, has has been periodically bandied about. Let's have a a panel of uh, experts to uh, peer review various papers that are ha that are being written. The problem there, and I guess it's who's going to sit on the peer review panel. It just uh, I'm thinking now it's it was about three or four years ago that this came up, and until you just mentioned it, I, I hadn't heard about it since. Uh, so there, uh, I don't know what happened to it. Uh, perhaps it's it's egos, like like any endeavor. I don't know, but the peer review has something that. Uh, that has been broached. I think uh, you know some of the elder statesmen of ufology's names have been mentioned, but nothing ever came of it, unfortunately. Well, I think that the, the sad part here, like when I bring up Stanton Friedman, someone who I respect quite a bit, but in, in talking with him and in, in, in talking to him on the show, it does seem like like Stan has a certain theory, and by God, he's going to stand by that theory no matter what else happens. I mean, he loves to say, "Don't bother," I, you know you. Don't bother me with the facts my mind's already made up. And he always uses right. that. And it's like psychological projection. And I think the last time we had him on the show, I called him on it. I said, you know, you keep, you, it's like you keep saying that. But then it sounds like that's what he's doing. And it applies to everyone but him, right. Well, right. I mean, and so that's the problem with this. And that, you know, when, when you start to dig through, as you start to scratch away the surface stuff, the facade, we, we start uncovering things that make people wonder, what's the truth component here? What's the exaggeration? Where have the writer embellishments occurred? And especially with this topic matter, and especially with something that happened right after the United States came out of the Second World War, where it's clear, I think, that the military very much did not want people to feel any sense of vulnerability or that, hey, there are things that are interacting with us that we can't control. I mean, if one looks at why was there secrecy imposed upon this, it's not that difficult to look at the context of what was going on at the time and saying, all right, we can almost start to see why they would have covered this up. Because, hey, you know what, we can't let people think that this is going on because it's going to create more instability right after we went through this terrible world war. Now, of course, if we extrapolate it to today, why do you think, and I'm asking both of you gentlemen this, why do you think 
that the secrecy continues? And as a second part of that question, is there indeed a hidden government that's dealing with this that's not accountable to the visible government? Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. And the question David asked was about sustaining government secrecy and the possibilities of a secret government. Who wants to go first? I'll, I'll go first. I'll, I'll take the first part. Uh, as, you, as you state, the uh, reasons for the cover-up back in 1947 are genuine and self-evident. The Cold War was just beginning. With the Soviet Union, we had just been victorious in World War II. Our military was at the height of its power and uh, esteem in the in the American public's mind. Whatever they tended to say tended to believe to be believed. Unlike today, where except for Roswell, nobody believes anything. Uh, certainly, the press doesn't believe anything that the military says, except for except for Roswell. So, and also 1947. Seven, late 40s, uh, the year 1938 was still uh, indelled in people's minds. The year of the Mercury Radio Theater's presentation of The War of the Worlds, uh, starring Orson Welles, which panicked the East Coast. The uh, the old H.G. Uh, Wells uh, rendition of uh, Invasion by Martians, where uh, even though the radio show mentioned quite often that it was a, a, a fictional account, the there was lots of panic in the streets. So that was still fresh in their minds. Moving on to uh, the early 60s, the Air Force commissioned the Brookings Institution to study the effect, the possible effects, of what contact with an alien race might have upon the, uh, to, uh, the Earth's uh, financial institutions, religious institutions, and cultural institutions. And the conclusion of the report in the early 60s by Brookings was that it would have a devastating effect upon those. So the uh, cover-up started. It was kept going by a fear of panic in the streets, uh, perhaps uh, also 
by the fact that uh, they possibly maybe they they couldn't figure out what they had. They had the craft and the the bodies, but they they just couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And uh, as you also mentioned, the uh, military mindset is to project an image of we've got everything covered, right. and to admit admit that you can't control your own airspace would be an admission the Air Force just could not make. So the the uh, cover up continues to the present day, uh, largely I believe because once you get a cover up secret going, it tends to get a life of its own. And to release a statement now by the president or someone else that hey folks, we've been lying to you all these years, uh, somebody is going to pay a political price. And we all know that senators and congressmen, their main objective is to get reelected. So. Indeed. That's why I believe the cover cover up is still in place. You know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was the chief of staff of the Army back in '47 when this happened, and went on to be a five-star general. Even in his own memoirs, he complained that after he became president, the Pentagon didn't tell him anything any longer. And I think that you know this demonstrates that as we've often been asked, well, why is it that this president hasn't gone public, or why isn't the president? even appears not to know the, the true nature of the, the phenomenon. Uh, Jimmy Carter made the campaign promise that he was going to have the files released on the phenomena in general. Never happened, did it? Bill Clinton even made public statements regarding Roswell itself and not being told the truth about it. He wished he actually asked, uh, wished what well, he could uh, be told the truth about it finally. I think a lot of it also stems back to the fact that they physically threatened United States citizens over this, that the military is just a case of, you know, making them swear an oath or giving them an order, and that's the end of it. But with civilians, what what is left except high-handed pressure and scare tactics, and unfortunately, as told to us by dozens of people involved with Roswell, physical threats, physical threats of violence, parents who are even told that their children would be killed over this. The sheriff, who was, you know, the first one that the rancher MacBrazel even reported this to, he was told that they would kill his family if he ever talked about this again. And just imagine if that Pandora's box should ever open up. That that's precisely what government officials did regarding this recovery of a weather balloon back in '47. And it's what it comes back to that uh, just about everything else of a top secret nature. You know, has long been declassified by this time. And Project Mogul was actually declassified, you know, 35 years ago. So why are these people still telling us we're still sworn to secrecy? Major uh, Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal, I can't talk about it. I'm still sworn to secrecy. Well, were you out at the crash site? Can't talk about it. I'm still sworn to secrecy. And that's the crux of the entire investigation on our part. All over a weather balloon? Well, it definitely, it seems odd. Then again, you have Jesse Marcel Jr., who has been, in recent years, very public and very forthcoming about his memories of the event, about him potentially handling the material, the crash material itself, with really detailed explanations and descriptions of what he saw 
this is a guy who's a military officer who has actually served in Iraq in uh, in a relatively advanced age. So, and I'm wondering about this. So, Jesse Marcel Jr. comes out and says, I handled this stuff. My father brought this in. He said it was not of this earth. I touched it. I remember it. Are you going to tell me that Jesse Marcel Jr. is not getting coercion from the government? No, we're not saying that. But the difference is, even as his father back in 1978, as the head of intelligence at Roswell in 47, going public, he only talked about unusual material with strange characteristics. As long as you're only talking about wreckage, debris, it always leaves that window open for something top secret, something foreign, something far from manufactured off the earth. But the difference is you don't hear anyone publicly saying that we saw bodies. We saw bodies that were not of this earth. Because then all bets are off. How do we explain that away? I think that's why it has allowed, it has afforded the, the, the military their third and fourth explanation. But one thing, too, even the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummy explanation to us was a major victory because it demonstrated some consensus on the part of the government that there were bodies involved. Right. Now, what do you guys then think about, and I'll just throw this on the table, Philip Corso, who would strengthen the argument for an extraterrestrial craft crashing in the New Mexico desert. What, what do you think about his claims about uh, working at the highest levels to disseminate that technology to industry? Well, this is something that Don and I, uh, we just never discuss. I would have to say that uh, taking the totality of Corso's claims, mm-hmm. the notion that certain things were back-engineered, re-engineered from the 1947 crash, that's, from our perspective, is all in the realm of speculation. Don and I try to keep speculation to a minimum, and... We try to deal in, in facts that we believe we have developed. The re-engineering thing is, is from our perspective, uh, speculation. The, the other claim that Corso, that I remember, was that he was at stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, and apparently one of the bodies headed for uh, right field, I think, or was, was just at Fort Riley. Just at Fort uh, he Riley. happened to... He happened to see. Now we we don't we have not found anything to support that. For fifty eight years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to the authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt. 
And, okay, about Corso. There are suggestions here that one of the problems in dealing with the Corso instance is that the book was written at the end of his life and that there are probably lots of errors because there probably were several authors who worked on it before Bill Burns got involved in the project and that maybe some of the errors or inconsistencies are the result of the fact that the editing was not well done. Maybe his memory, because he wasn't a well man at that time, wasn't quite as extensive or as accurate as it could be. What do you think? Well, and we understand that the family had even contested certain portions of the book for that very fact. Oh, boy. His father disagreed. The father disagreed with some of the content, but only after the book was released. I mean, I can't imagine that he wouldn't have had, you know, purview of the manuscript before it was, you know, finally submitted. But one part, one portion, or at least the speculation on the part that we would agree with, at least regarding the assimilation of any either foreign or some other type of material, recovered that the government doesn't manufacture anything. Everything is contracted out into the public sector, so to speak. And we have had first-hand witnesses ourselves through the years at Rand Corporation and General Electric and Battelle Institute and Hughes Aircraft and the Bureau of Standards describing, you know, receiving the material at one time or another for analysis and breakdown. But I think we both still stand in the position that it still remains a cover-up of ignorance, that they still haven't been able to break the code, so to speak. It's like teleporting back in time something as simple as a toaster and being able to take it apart, put it back together again. But if you can't plug it in, you can never get it to work. And we don't see really any evidence beyond maybe fiber optics, for one thing, but that they are able to plug this thing in. That they, In other words, they still can't figure it out. And as a result, then what do you announce? You have physical proof, but you don't know from where, from why, or from who. The other thing was uh, that, that left a little sour taste in my mouth was that there was a controversy arose over the forward to the book uh, by Strom, Senator Strom Thurmond that, uh, as I understand it, Thurmond w- thought he was writing a testimonial to uh, Corso's life, some, something along those lines. He had no idea that he was writing a forward to a UFO book. And uh, when he found that out, he, I believe he demanded uh, a retraction. So uh, it, it just, uh, for me, that, uh, you know, because when I first heard about it, oh, my goodness, you know, Strom Thurmond wrote a forward to this. It, you know, it lends credibility. And uh, then it turned out that uh, he, he thought he was writing a forward to something else. Or did he get a phone call? <laughs> but that even raises the point, well, because certainly Strom Thurmond, Senator Thurmond, and I met him once, I interviewed him many, many years ago when I was working in South Carolina, as a matter of fact, at a radio station, and this guy was alive forever. But anyway, the thing that I would ask then is, he was praising Corso for his military experience. So the question would be, would a guy like that lie about what happened to him? Well, you do make a very good point. It's no different than a challenge that we often make to the press, just as with, with Strom Thurmond. Well, Corso's a great guy, except regarding Roswell or UFOs. No different than the media tends to distrust everything that the government says 
except about UFOs. You can't have it both ways, and yet we try to, or they try to. So it's a, you make a good point. The thing about Corso is he had, a, in his favor, he had a full life. He had a life of uh, accomplishment. So what would he have to gain by, in his last years, by coming out with a story like that? So in his favor, that is in his favor. The, the fact that he, you know, it looks like he doesn't, he, did, he didn't need this. Well, maybe but, he did. Uh, maybe he did. Maybe he wanted to leave uh, a revenue-generating vehicle to his family. Maybe he did this because he felt, maybe Bill Burns told him, that this would be a New York Times bestseller and he would make a bunch of money. Made he, an offer he couldn't refuse. Yeah. So, of well, course, in somebody living on a military retirement income, that raises a possibility. We want to hear from you. If you comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. So certainly with Corso, could he have been just trying to make some money? And supposedly this was going to be just one book project of many. Right. That there was going to be projects about other aspects of his life, so this was only going to be one of them. But then even in his golden years, would he lie about things he did just to make money for his family, especially because he had an heroic career where he could have written things that might have sold his movie scripts, etc., etc. That also creates a wider issue. I think it also, um, and I would plead some naivety as far as uh, all the circumstances and particulars in this case, but there's certainly third-party influence here. Question of who approached who, who offered what to who, who spelled out this multi-series of books and events to who, and then who then, as a result, would capitalize the greatest of all this. And I think after all is said and done, the good colonel himself paid the price and um, died probably more prematurely than anyone would have anticipated, and as a result, uh, gained the least of all the aforementioned. Okay, well, moving past the Colonel Corso thing, and we have whatever it is, if what he says is true, that certain developments were given to private industry over the years, that we what we believe to be developments of our own scientific knowledge were actually from the aliens. The other question I'd have, and actually was something was asked in our message forums, which is that, hey, if one of their craft were to crash land here, wouldn't they want to recover it before we do so that we don't have evidence of who they are? Are you talking about the, wouldn't the aliens? Yes, like wouldn't, if they're aliens, if they're interdimensional beings, whatever they are, for whatever reason, their scout craft crashes on this planet they are exploring. Wouldn't they be the well, first to come here and grab that stuff before we recover it? Well, you're uh, anthropomorphizing. You're you're putting uh, human thought into something else. Uh, the, you know, they're not human, so it would pure speculation as to what what they would think if they think geez that's that's something that uh, i don't think any of us are qualified to answer there is an indication however along those lines 
that when this thing crashed in 1947, soon thereafter, there were reports by the ranchers up in Corona of lights out on the uh, the Foster Ranch where the uh, crash, the first part of the crash took place, of lights uh, beaming down to the ground very late at night, early in the morning, as if something was looking for something. There's also another report uh, at the time of someone traveling north uh, on the uh, Highway 285, which uh, runs uh, north and south uh, out of uh, Roswell. There's another report of a a classic flying saucer uh, just going across above the highway, close enough to the ground that the driver could see that it was a, a craft shaped like a flying saucer, right at the time that this happened, as if it had just come from the area where the, we know the crash took place, uh, uh, searching for something. So speculating uh, with that sort of information, uh, it appears that the, maybe they were looking for it. But, and there's, uh, another, there's another story that the son of uh, five-star general Nathan Twining told us that while his father, in charge of Air Material Command at Wright Field at that time in 47, that there was an infiltration, that there was an unknown object. This was in, within days after the recovery, where supposedly the wreckage and the bodies had actually been transported to Wright Field. An infiltration at that very base. An aircraft were scrambled, and there was attempt uh, at pursuit. So wouldn't be uh, taking it a step beyond the major reason for the cover-up, if we want to speculate, is that we no longer have the proof that it was recovered, it was retrieved, and we had it right in our hands and we lost it. And now after 60 years, what can they now announce? We had it, but they took it back. That's the very first time I've ever heard that. But if we want to speculate, and we have a, a lot of issues during this, uh, this program. It's also something to consider. Meanwhile, we do have reports of many other crashes uh, since then throughout the world. So, you know, uh, of course, the obvious question and any reasonable speculation is, even if 98% of these reports are bogus, what about the 2%? Well, yeah, only takes one. one. Yeah, Yeah, it only takes one to tell us we have something that's not human. Meanwhile, does it tell us it's extraterrestrial? No. No. We don't know that either, right? Are we all in agreement about that? Except for those, you know, in full possession of such evidence that if through their analysis they make the final determination, as one of the officers said to us regarding the bodies, they sure weren't from Texas. Right, Right. but that still assumes that we don't have the understanding to even make a determination as to where they would have come from. If we can't reverse engineer the technology and we don't know enough about even our own brains to be able to fix people's brains at a psychological level, really. And this is, brings up, of course, a meta question, which is where do these things really come from? What is their true nature? And uh, I would proclaim that at this point in time, with all of the research that's happened, we're still probably no closer to truly understanding what these things are than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you're agreeing with us then when we say that we believe it still is a cover-up of ignorance. We still don't know. We still don't have any answers. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, that's why we're, we're even having this discussion, because we're still in the dark for the most part. And, of course, that's incredibly frustrating, given that one would think that after all of this time, with 
all of the attention that's been paid to this and all of the people involved. I mean, we did talk about talk about compartmentalization, which of course makes me think that there's a good possibility that there's a bunch of stuff that Blanchard didn't share with Hawk. That because if we talk about true compartmentalization, even if they were friends, duty steps in and perhaps there weren't a lot of things that were shared. We we don't really know that ultimately. I um, I would we would agree, yeah. Yeah. So it makes it especially frustrating to try to realize what's going on here. I'm still really stunned that you know, we're talking about Roger Lear and his piece of material, and there was this notion that he won't send it to a lab because, well, all labs work for the military in one way or another. Of course, this precludes the notion that, hey, it's a big world. There's probably a European lab somewhere that's not under those kinds of constraints. And, hey, it's a big world. There probably are people that have significant financial resources that would want to undertake the process of actually determining truth. You know, if you've got a guy worth two, three hundred million bucks, I'm guessing that guy doesn't really care what people believe about him um, and would, would pony forward the money and the ability to say, okay, we're going to take this and make a, a, an absolute determination. You know, I'm going to raise a very strange... Well, can I just respond? Sure, go ahead, please. That. The museum, for a good number of years, even had a million-dollar reward offered for any physical proof. Right. And this was at the time that, I mean, Art Bell, Arts Parts, you know, was, you know, making the rounds, and... Linda Malton Howells, you know, you know, you know, bismuth, you know, layered piece of metal that she was claiming by all of the tests was not of earthly origin. And then by waving that million dollars, guess how many people actually came to the museum? Not a one. They all ran away. Because yeah. as long as sure. you can perpetuate that part of the myth, so to speak, you're safe. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Well, with those particular cases you mentioned, I can see other issues, but I'll tell our listeners we have one more session left with Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. They're authors, Mr. Carey, Mr. Schmidt, of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. You get a copy from the usual offenders, order from your favorite bookstore, Amazon.com, etc., etc. Okay, so we have that. Can we interject that the book has been out, what, on three or four weeks? Three and, uh, four weeks, right. After two weeks, two it, weeks it was a bestseller. And uh, right now we're we're in or we're past the second printing. So it's met with uh, universal acceptance uh, everywhere. I also and find, just parenthetically, it could change of the first 10 reviews over at Amazon that there were a couple a little bit lukewarm about it, but everybody else loved it. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good average. It, 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 well, it is, and it demonstrates to us, too, that for all of our the naysayers, who would suggest that Roswell has become passe and that even UFOs in general 
has become a non-secular within the last number of years. Well, I guess when when presented with a nuts and bolts, hard, you know, black and white presentation of the information, that most people are still very interested in what's at the bottom of all this. Well, okay, we have maybe about 10 minutes left for this episode, and as always with guests, with a lot of information, we can only cover a small portion of it. So I'm going to ask you, where do we go from here with Roswell? Obviously, the researchers are not going to get together anytime soon to pool their resources, whether they have 10%, 90%, whatever. They're not pooling their information. So how do we get to some kind of conclusion here? How do we take this to an answer as to what really happened? Well, what we are doing, I can only speak for Don and myself, uh, and maybe just me, but I think Don and I would agree that uh, our, our initial mission is to continue to try to find eyewitnesses to this event. From our research, we would say that perhaps at least 90% of them are gone now. And of the 10% that are left, half of them are suffering from the ravages of old age. So, you know, we're, we're beyond racing the undertaker. We're sprinting to the finish line. Pretty soon there will be none left. The, the other area that we're concentrating on is trying to locate a piece of physical evidence. The Holy Grail of Roswell, as Don and I refer to. Now, what is the Holy Grail? It's a piece of uh, one of the types of wreckage that uh, has been described often to us, the so-called memory metal, where you can hold it in your hand and wad it up to where you, it feels like you, you have nothing in your hand, place it over a flat surface, and before it hits the surface, it will immediately uh, flatten out to its original shape, uh, leaving no creases or marks whatsoever. And it's, it's a piece where you can't scratch, cut, burn, or uh, deform in any way. We're actively searching for a piece of that. So, uh, and I know I'm leaving something out. Uh, certainly documents. We occasionally we uncover a document. Uh, we've, we've got two documents right now, Don knows about, that we haven't published on yet. But it, re- it relates to uh, the job that certain people at the base did in the cleanup. So uh, we can only pursue the evidence trail until either all the witnesses are gone, either Don and I are gone, we find a piece of uh, incontrovertible evidence, or the uh, mythical day when the government uh, admits everything. You know, if one looks at all the circumstantial eyewitness testimony that's been accumulated, we think back to how many people have been executed for nothing more than the eyewitness testimony of a lone individual. And in our case, we're talking literally of hundreds of people who all attest to their deathbeds, to the very first announcement regarding this incident, that it was indeed the recovery of a flying saucer. The government, you know, their, their one lone witness now to Project Mogul, Sheridan Cabot, the counterintelligence officer who was with Jesse Marcel when they first went to examine and bring back material from the debris field. He contradicted himself in numerous conversations with us to the point that he wasn't there. He was there, but nothing happened. He was there, but it was just a balloon. He was there, and it could have been a flying saucer, as he even told us at one point. So there are no witnesses to this being anything else. And so, obviously, we stay in contact with the families. We actually stay in wait and hear after the fact that they confessed. They said something in the last couple of days when asked about this. And then, fortunately, we're the ones that receive the information. 
And that's the advantage we have in all this, because we don't have to speculate. We don't have to theorize. We don't have to set goals as to what we, we need to accomplish. We just continue this investigative methodology on our part and go where the evidence takes us. I was a skeptic when I first went down to New Mexico almost 20 years ago. thought we'd wrap this up on a weekend. But then when you talk to the people who handled the material and they described firsthand how it just, to this day, you know, just defied anything and everything they have ever seen or handled before, you have to step back and consider, if I'm wrong, by looking into this, and after all is said and done, Tom and I, tomorrow, something, somebody proves that we are, you know, completely wrong about this. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't affect anybody. But for all of those who turned a deaf ear or a blind eye, and with the reality of potentially one of the biggest stories of all time, staring them right in the face, and they refuse to look into it. They're the ones that, as far as we're concerned, are guilty of investigative malpractice. They're the ones who are certainly guilty of the greater transgression. To the skeptics out there who uh, have hitched their uh, wagon to the Project Mogul balloon theory, there is not one, not one credible witness to a balloon event in Brazel's pasture just just not one and uh, yet they will hold on to that we have over 600 witnesses to uh, something else to an extraterrestrial event granted not every witness saw everything but they all have a little piece of the story that always points to a uh, an extraterrestrial event either involving the craft or the bodies so it just it just uh, amazes me that the uh, Mogul balloon theory and the crash crash test dummies uh, is even still a viable option. Especially the crash test dummies. That one kind of strikes me as being lame, regardless of what you think about Roswell or anything. That is as lame as they come. I always throw this out because it's something that is never considered by the skeptics. For those of us who spent you know many hours, many days, many you know numerous visits out to the actual location, and this is the authentic the very site that even the Air Force concedes as their Mulga balloon crash site. High desert, open range of central New Mexico. We have flown over the area numerous times in small planes, in helicopters, and one thing becomes quite evident is that once you are airborne, you can see for 100 miles. Now, for the novice, for the armchair, for anyone else who's never been there, they had absolutely no authority, no business even commenting on the possibility that whether it was Nick Redfern or anybody else, that this was some top secret test, such as even Mogul, gone awry, gone off course. Because the point is, that stuff was out there for days. And if we want to believe the July 9th article, Harassed Rancher, quoting Brazo, the Project Mogulist would suggest it was out there for three full weeks before Brazo reported it. But the point is, nobody was looking for it. If they would have been looking for some top secret test, they would have found it before the rancher even did. So the point is, if nobody was looking for it, it's because we weren't missing anything. And if we weren't missing anything, then whose was it? And our witnesses are telling us what it was. Okay, and they're all saying they felt it was something from elsewhere. Thank you very much for joining us. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you, yeah. gentlemen. Donald Schmidt, Thomas Carey, authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. Thank you for spending the evening with us on The Paracast. Thanks, Our pleasure. pleasure. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. Paracast.